0: What I wanted to say is that, yes, that we are scared, but this uh, movement is already so much stronger than
1: our feelings of of being scared or of being tortured. What do you get when you combine COVID-19, social media influencers, and girl power? In the Eastern European nation of Belarus, the answer is revolution.
0: Are we afraid of being killed in the streets? Yes. Will we stop going to the streets because of it? Hell no.
1: Welcome to Skim This. This week, we'll explain what's driving hundreds of thousands of people into the streets of Belarus. To call for the removal of a dictator who's been in office and allegedly rigging elections for 26 years. Longer than some of the people protesting him have been alive. Then we've got the unconventional story of how Republicans skipped writing a new party platform at this week's RNC. Oh, and we've got a fun fact for you at the end of the show, or at least what passes as a fun fact in 2020. But first, some context on two developing stories. The first has to do with the shooting of Jacob Blake. Blake is a 29-year-old black man living in the city of Kenosha, Wisconsin. On Sunday, police there responded to a 911 call about a domestic incident. When the police arrived, a bystander started recording video, which appears to show police yelling at Blake before he walked away from them and opened his car door. And that is when a Kenosha police officer shot Blake several times at point-blank range in the back. An attorney for the Blake family said Blake's three sons were right there in the car as this happened, watching the whole thing. According to his family attorney, Blake is currently in critical condition and is paralyzed. What followed the shooting has by now become a familiar pattern in the U.S. Protests and demonstrations of solidarity with yet another victim of police violence. Milwaukee's NBA team, the Bucks, boycotted their playoff game. In a statement, the players said that on the court, they put in maximum effort and hold each other accountable, and that it was only fair that lawmakers and law enforcement should too. And the WNBA followed suit, boycotting some of their own games. But on the streets of Kenosha, protests took a very different turn. In addition to some largely peaceful protests, the city has seen more destructive protests at night, businesses were looted, and several buildings were burned to the ground. Unfortunately, things didn't end there. A
0: lot of disturbing and graphic images from Kenosha overnight. Two people were killed there last night, another wounded, when shots rang out during protests. Social media footage appears to show civilians
1: with guns On Tuesday night, a white man reportedly opened fire on protesters and then allegedly was able to walk by responding police cars without being stopped. The 17-year-old suspect later fled to neighboring Illinois, where he was arrested on Wednesday and reportedly charged with homicide. That's where the story currently stands, but we wanted to pull back and highlight two key things. First— This is yet another police shooting of a Black American, and it has reignited calls for police reform. Walter Katz is the vice president of criminal justice at Arnold Ventures, a philanthropic organization. He spent nearly two decades as a public defender in California, before overseeing police reform efforts in the Chicago mayor's office. He says calls to reform the police are usually too narrow in focus.
2: Often when we see reactions by policymakers to a high-profile incident are trying to solve for the last thing that occurred. After the killing by Louisville police officers of Breonna Taylor, there was a call to ban no-knock warrants. Same thing occurs in terms of George Floyd. Let's prevent chokeholds. What is necessary is to take a step back and ask, why are these events recurring? And what are the factors behind them that, seems to create the conditions so these events recur.
1: This week, Wisconsin's governor called on the state's legislature to urgently pass nine police reform bills proposed earlier this summer, which, like Katz mentioned, include banning chokeholds and ending no-knock warrants. Katz says one proposed reform in Wisconsin goes a bit further and involves adopting a standard for the use of force by all police in the state. Basically, new ground rules that apply to all officers— and which the public can understand. It's too early to tell whether those or any of the reforms will pass the Wisconsin legislature, but we could find out as early as next week. And the second major thing about this week's events in Kenosha concerns vigilantes. It's a term for people acting like they have authority to enforce the law when they really don't. In footage captured before Tuesday night's shooting, several civilians can be seen carrying assault rifles in the streets of Kenosha, They reportedly claim to be protecting a building from protesters. And in this footage, captured on a live stream called The Rundown Live, the police drive by and actually toss them some water bottles and thank them for being out that night. Thank you for your cooperation. I understand what you're doing. Thank you. You're welcome. And Kat says... Seeing that video reinforced a double standard he observed earlier this year when armed and mostly white militia members entered the Michigan state capitol to protest COVID-19 restrictions. And police didn't bat an eye.
2: Compare that to the generally unarmed, almost universally unarmed, peaceful protesters in reaction to the killing of George Floyd. And how quickly uh, the riot gear came out, and the tear gas, and the stun grenades, and the batons and it appears that the response to one group of protesters by the police was very different than to another group of protesters and i think one of the difficult conversations that we need to have is that what is the role of the police in a democratic in a democratic small d society and the role that they play in keeping the peace in a neutral fashion
1: for more updates on the situation in Kenosha, be sure to subscribe to our morning newsletter, The Daily Skim. You can subscribe at theskim.com. Our second developing story this week has to do with threats from Mother Nature. For once, we're not talking about COVID-19, though the pandemic is a part of the story. We're talking about hurricanes on the Gulf Coast and wildfires on the West Coast. In California, fires have burned through over 1.3 million acres after what the State Fire Service calls a, quote, lightning siege. And in the Gulf this week, two storms delivered a rare back-to-back hit to residents of Texas and Louisiana. First with Tropical Storm Marco on Monday and then with Hurricane Laura making landfall in the middle of the week as a Category 4 storm. So how exactly are states managing emergency protocols like evacuations during a pandemic? In Northern California, tens of thousands of residents have been evacuated and schools have closed down. At other schools, cafeterias and gyms are being converted into social distant compliance shelters. Elsewhere, the American Red Cross has resorted to sending many evacuees to shelter in hotels. It's something they've done before for other disasters, but not at this level. And because of the pandemic, the Red Cross is discouraging drop-off donation supplies. COVID-19 is impacting the hurricane response in similar ways, though on a larger scale. State officials in Louisiana mostly suspended COVID-19 testing in preparation for the storms. And a spokesperson for Memorial Hermann Hospitals in the Houston area, told the local ABC affiliate that they're preparing by making sure they have enough food and supplies to shelter in place for 96 hours. Also, remember those long lines outside the supermarket while people stocked up on supplies earlier in the spring? Well, in the lead up to the storms, that happened again too. If this all sounds chaotic, especially during a pandemic, the bad news is it might be like this for a while hurricane season in the Atlantic actually goes on till the end of November. And forecasters have predicted that this year could be one of the worst hurricane seasons on record. And the California wildfire season, well, isn't actually a season. In recent years, wildfires have been happening year round, meaning this could be the new norm. And this year's fires are already among the worst the state has ever seen. Meanwhile, COVID-19 looks like it'll be sticking around for the long-term too. And the full scope of the damage and how states are able to manage these disasters all during a pandemic may not be seen for a while. If you'd like to assist the victims of Hurricane Laura, you can donate to the American Red Cross at redcross.org or text the word Laura to 90999 to make a $10 donation. Hundreds of thousands of demonstrators have been on the streets of Belarus for over two weeks. The thing they're protesting? A national election held earlier this month, in which the president of Belarus was elected for a sixth term. His name is Alexander Lukashenko, and he's been president for 26 years. He hasn't been worried about job security. That's because Lukashenko has been called Europe's last dictator. Oh, yeah, Europe. Belarus literally neighbors countries in the European Union, like Poland, Latvia, and Lithuania. And this guy Lukashenko has been in charge there for basically all of his country's independence. That's because Belarus is a relatively new country. It's the millennial of countries. After the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, Belarus was born. And not long after, in 1994, Lukashenko rose to power. Pretty quickly, Lukashenko developed a bad rap. We're talking about abolishing term limits, censoring the press, presiding over corruption in all ranks of government, and more recently, human rights violations, including torture and unsafe prison conditions. It's kind of fitting, then, that he has a habit of dressing in a military uniform and walking around the streets of the capital with automatic weapons. So what was it like to grow up in Belarus and watch this guy rise to power?
0: I'm a freelance journalist, editor, and a international relations and security analyst. We called up Hanna Baraban to find out. Growing up was... Uh... Basically, now I understand that it was strange because I never knew at school, uh, we learned the what is a party, but we did not realize what is that actually, because we do not have parties. We learn in theory what is
1: opposition, but we did not realize what is that because we don't have an opposition. For much of her childhood in Belarus, Barman said people didn't question who was in charge. For me, that Lukashenko is a president was something that, you know, the sky
0: is blue and the sun is shining, Lukashenko is the president. It is something
1: that you just uh, automatically are saying. Rewind. That's not democracy. And for that reason, the U.S. and other nations consider Belarus to be an authoritarian state and say that every recent election in Belarus since Lukashenko took over has been rigged. But something about this year's election felt different from the start. And one thing that set it apart was that several major opposition candidates had big followings on social media. They did
3: not expect that it would be such a strong influencing mechanism. A lot of people signed up to this YouTube channel, Country for
1: Life. That's Dr. Ala Lukovets, a political scientist based in Belarus. She told us that President Lukashenko underestimated the power of social media to mobilize young people. That one YouTube channel that she mentioned, Country for Life, was started by a blogger and activist who wanted to run against Lukashenko in this year's election, until he was arrested. When he went to jail, his wife stepped in to run instead, and took over his social accounts. And her message, that she didn't want to rule Belarus, but just oversee the return to fair elections, hit a nerve.
3: This digital uh, media became really a powerful means of influence.
1: Between that account and others run by other opposition leaders on the encrypted messaging app Telegram, they've racked up tons of new followers. We're talking about a combined 2 million followers, which in a country of 9.5 million people is pretty impressive. So this year, President Lukashenko had a little problem on his hands when it came to controlling the narrative and COVID-19 turned that little problem into a powder keg ready to explode. Belarus
3: never imposed a lockdown to curb the spread of COVID-19.
1: The
2: country's autocratic leader, Alexander Lukashenko, has preached his message of defiance in a packed church, advising his citizens to beat the virus by drinking more vodka.
0: Many in
3: the country are weary of the government's lax policies toward the virus and are taking measures now
1: into their own hands. That was the scene going into the presidential election on August 9th. Hanna Baraban wasn't hopeful the results would reflect how people actually voted. But between the country's failed handling of COVID-19 and the unprecedented support of the political opposition this year, she expected President Lukashenko might be a bit more modest about the size of his victory.
0: I thought that our self-proclaimed president would be more wise and he would stop at at least 60%. Of course, almost all our elections were falsified starting from, I think, 2001. But I thought that this time he will show some, I don't know, humility. That's not what happened. We managed to connect to the news and when I saw the, that he got 80%, well, then I understood that that something will happen in the country.
1: something did happen. People took to the streets to protest the results, and police used tear gas, rubber bullets, batons, and even live ammunition to push them back. At least 6,000 people were arrested. After being released, protesters say they faced appalling conditions in prison, from overcrowding to poor sanitation, violent beatings and psychological torture. Some women also told the press they were forced to strip naked in front of male officers while being filmed. Those stories only inspired people to protest more, and Hannah told us that she and others have continued taking to the streets, even if it puts them at risk.
0: There were the riot police in front of us, and my parents were with me. I was afraid for my parents because I thought that my parents, especially my father, would not survive the prison. I would survive. I'm young and I'm a girl, first they arrested mostly guys, and I thought, I will survive. But my
1: parents will not.
0: I was scared for them.
1: More than two weeks after the protests in Belarus began, people are still out in the streets. The top opposition candidate running against President Lukashenko has fled the country, and arrests have continued along with a continued crackdown on the press. But in recent days, police haven't been using violence to clear protests, despite a promise by the president to stop all demonstrations. And Dr. Lukovets told us that women in Belarus deserve a lot of the credit for lowering tensions, even while speaking out.
3: I think women have played a huge role by organizing these changes of solidarity and by having such a great impact on the success of this whole protest movement. Women played a crucial role, a crucial role to stop those repressions. They came out into the chains of solidarity, wearing white clothes, holding flowers, and demanding to stop this brutality.
1: So what's the skin? If you're thinking, this story in Belarus sounds a tiny bit familiar. Didn't something like this happen in Ukraine a few years ago? Well, you're kind of on to something. Belarus and Ukraine are neighbors. And in 2014, Ukraine also saw hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets demanding democracy. But there's an important difference. During its big revolution, Ukraine was trying to get recruited for Team Europe. Meanwhile, Belarus is super reliant on Russia for things like energy and trade. Dr. Lukovic says if Russia wanted to, it could literally cut off Belarus from supplies of oil and gas which is a scary thought with winter not too far on the horizon. And that's one reason that protesters in Belarus aren't trying to change their international squad and are mostly keeping their focus on domestic goals, like getting President Lukashenko out of office, freeing political prisoners, and having fair elections. But that does leave protesters in Belarus feeling like they're getting the cold shoulder from the European Union and its allies, even though Belarus literally shares a border with three EU countries. There's been some talk of possible EU or US sanctions against President Lukashenko's inner circle. But overall, Hanna says that international support for Belarus has felt a bit underwhelming. In any other country, European
0: country, the response would be much bigger and much stronger, much more vocal than it is now. In Belarus here, we are actually all alone, fighting for these principles that other countries already already developing for centuries.
1: Dr. Lukovets has a different feeling. She understands why the revolution in Belarus might not be on the front pages, but she hopes the world can support those fighting for a basic standard of democracy in her country. And at a time when Americans are marking 100 years since the 19th Amendment expanded voting rights, and in an election year when people are counting on their votes to matter, that's a fight worth paying attention to.
3: I think there is a great lesson for the whole world, because Belarus, it's a story of how people, after living for 26 years in the conditions of authoritarian regime, finally went to the streets, finally embraced their own power. No matter what, we should fight for our rights, for freedom, and for democracy. And it's possible to do that.
1: Last week on the show, we talked about a little bit of drama surrounding the Democratic National Convention. It was over the language that Democrats put in—or actually didn't put in—the party's official political platform about fossil fuel subsidies. And while we still don't have a good answer about why that happened, it's worth saying that internal debates over political platforms are actually pretty common in election years. Well, at this week's Republican National Convention, the Republican Party decided to skip the drama altogether. They basically said, since Trump already has a platform from four years ago, can't we just use that? And that's exactly what they did. For the first presidential election since the 1850s, the Republican Party doesn't have a new political platform and is instead letting Trump set the agenda 100%. The party defended its move, saying it wasn't right to have a small number of people set an agenda on behalf of all the party supporters, though not all Republican supporters are on board, including the editors of one conservative media outlet, The National Review. In an editorial, they wrote that taking the energy to write a platform was the least the party could do if it's asking voters to let them run the entire country. And other Republicans quoted by the news outlet Politico said repolishing the 2016 platform was just sloppy since the political landscape has changed so much since then. Instead of having a party platform to reference this year, voters will have to make do with a 50-bullet-point list of President Trump's second-term goals. In a reference to the ongoing pandemic, one goal was to, quote, return to normal in 2021, which, as far as the political agenda goes, is a bit light on details. But as far as New Year's resolutions go, we can get on board. For more on President Trump's second-term goals, we've linked to them in our show notes. Before we go today, we've got a fun fact, or actually just a comically dark fact, that will definitely make you say, that's so 2020 a lot of us have our eyes on a big event coming up in the first week of November, including NASA. That's because NASA reported that an asteroid is heading toward Earth and will come very close on none other than November 2nd, as in the day before the presidential election. But fear not. NASA says, as far as asteroids go, he's a little guy. Think about the length of a king-size bed or just six and a half feet. So while that might be a lot of bed for any of us Earthlings, when it comes to asteroids, well, NASA isn't too worried. Plus, NASA also says that even if it did enter the Earth's atmosphere, and the chances of that happening are less than half of 1%, it's so small that it would very likely disintegrate before ever reaching the surface. So you can cross asteroid-hitting Earth off your list of things that might happen in 2020. That's one less thing to worry about. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr, Marion Lozano, and Luke Vargas. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next Friday. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.